Happy New Year, everyone. How are the New Year resolutions going? Who's failed already? And who's not being truthful with me? (laughs) Our daughter Jo told Lynn that her New Year resolution is to make this month Red January. I said to Lynn, what's Red January? She said it's an acronym, R-E-D, and it stands for Run Every Day. And I said, that's nice, good for her. And Lynn said, and for you and me, this is going to be said January, S-E-D. I said, what's that? She said, Red January is Run Every Day, said January is Soup Every Day. So after the um, initial shock horror, I said, I think I can live with soup every day, so long as it doesn't affect my main course every day and my dessert every day. (laughs) And Lynn said, I think you've missed the point again. Anyway, clearly, um, soup every day January wasn't up for discussion. So if I seem a little bit grumpy this month, it's not because I've become a Calvinist. It's just the calorie deprivation. (laughs) So what do we think about New Year resolutions? Unless they involve putting me on a soup diet, personally, I don't really have a very strong view. But there's something about the start of a new year that makes us think about things being made new, isn't there? Maybe new starts and new opportunities. And it also makes us think, Where does God feature in that? Does God have new things for us in 2020? You may say, well, how would I know if God has new things for me in 2020? And I think the answer to that is, yes, he does, if we want them. I say that he has new things for us because throughout the Bible, it seems that he specializes in making things new. And the reason I say, if we want them, is because he will never impose anything on us. Which means that we have to want it. And we have to play our part in cooperating to make it happen. The Holy Spirit provides the power. But our cooperation with the Holy Spirit is like the cord between the plug socket and the electrical appliance. All the power in the world won't do anything if we are not plugged into it. And it's great to come up for prayer on a Sunday morning, and we we really encourage that. But, you know, we can come up for prayer every single week, and nothing will change unless we're cooperating with the Holy Spirit in something that he's asking of us. In Galatians 5.25, the Apostle Paul says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If God is asking something of us, then we need to be obedient. Depending on the translation, the word obey appears over 400 times in the Bible, which obviously means that it's very important. But we don't like obeying anyone these days, do we? No one likes being told what to do. Our usual reaction is, who are you to tell me? And I won't ask for a show of hands as to whether you can personally identify with that yourself. But if God is asking something of us, the route to his blessing and the new things that he has for us runs through our obedience, 
We can't do a swerve around it, even if what he's asking of us is inconvenient. And you know, that's why the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. The clue is in the name. So if you know that God is speaking to you about something, maybe it's to do with money or serving or your lifestyle, how you behave at work or how you behave at home, your language or your jokes, reading the Bible, praying, whatever it is, if God is asking something of us, the route to his blessing and the new things that he has for us runs through our obedience to that, getting our life in step with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit, who is the presence of God and the person of God, can be at home there. Now, for some of us, talking about new things is is great, but we don't actually like change. For every person who likes change and finds it exciting, there's someone else here who hates change and finds it scary. And I think we tend to divide down the middle on that, like Marmite or having soup every day in January. (laughs) And it's right to say that change isn't always for the best. Just because something's new doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. But there is an old saying that the good is the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. And we settle for something that's good too easily, which is where we get that idea of good enough from. And I think that's because human nature is probably to be content with the status quo and to repeat things that seem to work ad nauseum. There you go. Two bits of Latin in one sentence. What a great start to 2020. The good is the enemy of the best if it stops us moving on to something better that God has for us. And I think God always does have something better for us than the place that we're in right now. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul quotes from Isaiah and he says this, That's what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There's so much more that he can do and would like to do. Ephesians 3.20, Paul says, we're praying to a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And I don't know about you, but I can ask for quite a lot and I can imagine God doing quite a lot. But he wants to do immeasurably more than that. And if we ask ourselves the question, is God ambitious? Is he ambitious for our lives? Is he ambitious for his church? You bet he is. Does he have better things in store for us than the current things? even the current things that are good in themselves. You bet he does. I think God is as ambitious for us and for his church as we will allow him to be through our obedience and our cooperation and our willingness to say yes to whatever the things are that he's asking of us. Our willingness for us to be part of the answer when we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in this place, right here, right now, as it is in heaven.
our willingness to be the answer to our own prayer. As Isaiah was in Isaiah 6, 8, when he heard the Lord say, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. God's power at work within us in Ephesians 3.20 is not a problem, but sometimes our cooperation might be. So we need to reflect on that for ourselves without guilt and without condemnation because God doesn't do guilt and condemnation and nor do we do guilt or condemnation. But we do each need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside us especially if it's about something that will get in the way of the blessing that God has for us. I said just now that throughout the Bible it seems that God specialises in making things new. In Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, he made this beautiful world out of a shapeless mass of nothingness. And in the same way, he wants to make beautiful things out of our lives. In Revelation, which is the very last book in the Bible, he's going to remake this beautiful world. A new heavens and a new earth, which means a new cosmos. They didn't have a a collective word for it. A new creation that we call heaven for short. He's going to remake everything so that it's all beautiful again in every way with all of the bad stuff taken out and everything that's been damaged and harmed by sin and death and brokenness healed and restored. God is a creative God and a recreative God. That's why he saves us and he saves his creation instead of just giving up and starting again. He wants to make our lives beautiful again in every way with all the bad stuff taken out. And what we call heaven is when all of that will be fully and completely fulfilled. But you know, it's starting now because through Jesus, the kingdom is here now. The first fruits of that are here now. Now, as well as not yet. He's starting to make our lives beautiful again with bad stuff taken out. Now, as well as not yet. And everyone who wants to be part of that new world, part of that new creation, is welcome to be there. Anyone who wants to love God more than they love selfishness. Anyone who wants to serve God, not just serve themselves. Who want to love the things of God more than they love the things of this world. Who want to do what God wants, not just do whatever they want. And most importantly, people who want to start doing all those things now to start knowing God now and being in the presence of God now not just as a way of hedging their bets for when they die and then for the Jewish people in the Old Testament the pivotal event of their history was also when God made something new in the story of the Exodus when God rescued them from slavery and oppression in Egypt to a new life in the promised land. The story of the Exodus became the defining event for Israel as a people. Exodus 12 was the pivotal text of the Old Testament where God said, remember the Exodus every year in the festival of the Passover. 
And if you know a bit about the story, it begins with the supernatural defeat of Pharaoh, when the power of God defeats the evil powers that ruled their world and oppressed God's people. And it all comes to a a climax in a night of final judgment, when the people of God were marked out as people um, on that Passover night whom God would rescue by the blood of the sacrificial lamb daubed over the lintels and the doorposts of their houses so that death itself would literally pass over them so they'd be spared that judgment. They were saved from death and began their journey into a new life, a new life that God had for them, a promised land that God had for them. And I don't know if you can see the imagery here of what God has done for us through Jesus. And if you can, it's not surprising because that is the context that God gave us in the New Testament to frame Jesus' death and resurrection. It's no accident that Jesus chose to die at Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And the Last Supper, where we get communion from, that was a Passover week meal. Jesus could have chosen to die on the Day of Atonement, which was a totally different festival in the Jewish year, if his death was all about sin or mainly about sin. But the reason that Jesus' death deals with sin is because sin stands in the way of something else. Jesus died for our sin so that something else could happen, so that we could be set free and be saved from the judgment that would otherwise come upon us, so that his judgment would pass over us because we are literally covered by the blood of the Lamb, so that the powers that separate us from God and stop us being free to be the person that God made us to be and who God wants us to be would be defeated. You see, because for the Israelites, it didn't just stop with being rescued from Egypt. It wasn't just all about what they were rescued from. It was all about what they were released into as well. The place that God had for them. A new life with a new way of living as the people of God together. And so too is the gospel about that. It isn't just about each of us individually getting a ticket to heaven for when we die. And it isn't just about going to church in the meantime. It's about living a new life, living in a different place, living in a different way as people who are free. Not just personally free as individuals, but free to be a people of God together. And the so that is symbolised by the promised land that was ahead of them, the future that God had for them, the place that God had for them to live and the place that God has for us to live as well. Over and over again, God promised them this new and better land to live in, this place that he wanted to lead them into, this land that he said would be flowing with milk and honey. 20 times in the text it is called that, a land flowing with milk and honey, to keep reminding them that that was their destiny. That was the so that 
that they were saved for. That was the kind of place God wanted them to live. And if they believed him and they were obedient to him, it was the place that they could live and they would live. So I want to spend the rest of the time that we had this morning just looking at what happened when they left Egypt and they reached the border of that promised land. Because for some of us this morning at the start of this new year, maybe we are a bit like those Israelites. We know that we've been saved from Egypt. We know that we've been saved from our old life and from slavery to the things of this world. We know that we're no longer under the power of the ruler of this world which for them was Pharaoh and for us is Satan. That's what Jesus called him, the ruler of this world. We know that we're a Christian. We know all of that in our heads. But maybe we also know that we haven't yet come into the fullness of what God has for us. We know that we're not yet in that promised land. So it's as if we are standing on the border. We know what we've been saved from but we haven't yet come into the so that of what we've been saved for. And the story of what happened is in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament. We haven't got time to read it all now, but let me just explain the story and read a few bits from it. And what happens is that Moses sends a scouting party of 12 men, 12 leaders actually, um, one from each of the 12 tribes and he sends them to spy out the land ahead of them. And he says, go into the land, see what you see and report back on what it's like. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. It happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. So off they go. And when they come to the valley of Eshkol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also brought back samples of the pomegranates and figs. So far, so good. It's like they're experiencing the first fruits of what God had said the land would be like. So reading on. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. So you would think that would be that, wouldn't you? What God said the promised land was like, it was like. But, there's a but coming. Did you know the difference between sheep and goats is that sheep say yes, but goats say yes, but. That's one of my um, Christmas jokes from a Christian Christmas cracker. Not really. Sheep say yes, but goats say yes, but. Some of you still aren't getting it. Anyway, um, I thought it was good. 
But this is the but that's coming. But the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Not entirely sure how they thought that since they were spies. But anyway, moving on. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own experience of life and even, dare I say, in church life, but moaning is contagious. And what happens is that lots of people start complaining. If only we'd died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. But not all of the spies thought like that. Ten of them did. Joshua and Caleb didn't. They said to the people of Israel, the land we travelled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But Joshua and Caleb lost the argument. Because you can't lead people who don't want to be led or who want to follow people they shouldn't be following. Three chapters on in number 16, the people even start to look back nostalgically on what Egypt was like. Sin does that to you. It makes bad stuff seem like good stuff. They say to Moses, why have you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? But Egypt was never a land flowing with milk and honey for the Israelites. They were starving in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. But for some reason they started kidding themselves that Egypt wasn't so bad after all. In Numbers 11, just to show how disobedience and sin can even screw up your taste buds, they said, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt and we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic we wanted. They even started to long for leeks, onions and garlic. How awful is that? Now, in case you don't know, I don't like leeks, onions and garlic. There will not be any leeks, onions or garlic in heaven. Uh, God has told me that. It's, um, it's all going to be burned in the lake of fire or, or something like that. I'm a bit sketchy on the details. But you know, the question facing the Israelites was this. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Which leaders are you going to follow? All 12 of the spies actually agreed that it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. That what God had said all along, over and over again, was true. And they'd seen the first fruits of that land. They'd experienced the first fruits of that land personally. 
But some powerful and persuasive voices were saying, this place is not for you. Don't go there. Go back to Egypt. The same kind of powerful, persuasive voices that we are tempted to listen to sometimes as well that sound so plausible to us but are really so deceitful because they're promising things about Egypt that simply aren't true. It's kind of like that old saying that you can take the Israelites out of Egypt but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelites. And it's a bit like that with us. God can take us out of this world but he can't take this world out of us. That's where we have to want it. That's where we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's where we have to be obedient. That's where we have to want the promised land more than we want Egypt. And we have to stop kidding ourselves about how great Egypt is because it really isn't. There's nowhere better for us to live than the place that God has for us, the place that God wants us to be in his kingdom. So here's the question and we will finish with this. Imagine yourself standing at the border of the promised land that God has for you. What do you see? Do you see a land of promise? Do you see a land where God will be with you? A place that he's brought you to? that he wants you to come into? Or do you just see the problems? Do you just see the giants? The negative reports of those spies were right in a way. There were Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites and Canaanites living in that land. But you know, actually God had already told them that way back in Exodus 3.8. 75 chapters before that in the story. The fact that life in the promised land wouldn't all be plain sailing was not news. No one ever said that there wouldn't still be battles to be fought and enemies to be overcome. And it's actually the same for us too. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we get a free pass in life and that the problems of living in this world pass us by. It's called the promised land, not the land that's only ever full of nice promises. Even Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16, 33. But he also said, take heart because I have overcome the world. And he said, I've told you this because I want in me that you should have peace. Matthew 6, 34, when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, Let tomorrow worry about itself. He went on to say, because each day has enough trouble of its own. So the point is that, yes, there are still enemies and there are still battles to be fought in our promised land as well. But just like their promised land, God is inviting us to see it through the eyes of Joshua and Caleb, through the lens of faith and trust. And not just to stand at the border, but to go in. To believe what God has said about what that land in front of you is actually like. To see the blessings and not the challenges. 
Because as Joshua and Caleb said, it is a wonderful land. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Don't be afraid of what's there. Those people have no chance because God is with us. So don't be afraid. So let's take a step of faith this morning and go in to that promised land that God has for us in this new year.